These are the true stories of farmers, <coughs> conservationists, sustainable ag advocates, and researchers dedicated to advancing public policies to achieve a sustainable farming and food system in the United States. Find out what happens when people take action and start caring for the land. Uh, this is Ron Cruz. It's October 11th, 2017. Ferg Hefner, Senior Policy Director for the National Sustainable Agriculture Coalition. And I are in the Methodist Building on Capitol Hill in Washington, D.C. this morning, where we have the privilege of interviewing former Senator Tom Harkin, Democrat from Iowa who served in Congress from 1974 to 2015, five terms in the House and five terms in the Senate. Uh, Senator, thank you very much for joining us today. Really, really appreciate it. Sure. There are, uh, you know, many, many accomplishments from your distinguished career that we could discuss, not the least of which is the Americans with Disabilities Act of 1990, as well as many other laws and programs that resulted from your leadership in, in the Health and Human Services Committees over the years, programs that really continue to improve the quality of life for all Americans. Uh, this morning, however, Ferd and I would like to primarily focus on your service throughout your career on the House and Senate Agriculture Committees and, appro and the Appropriation Committees mm -hmm. relevant to them, mm -hmm. particularly your leadership on policies and programs to advance sustainable and organic farming in healthy rural communities. Mm -hmm. So I always like to start these interviews by asking folks I talk with for this archive about how they got interested in agriculture and rural issues going all the way back to your childhood, and in your case, in the small town of Cumming, Iowa. Yeah. So. Well, that's uh, talking about a walk down memory lane. Well, when I was, uh, well, our family was very poor. Uh, my mother was an immigrant. My dad only had a sixth grade education, but we had one acre of land. <laughs> we didn't have a farm, we just had one acre. But on that acre, we had a small barn, a chicken coop. Uh, we always had a milk cow and we'd stake the milk cow out different places, put them on the stake. During the winter, we just let the cow have the run of the barn. And we had a milk stall. Those things that go around their neck, homes where we milk the cow. And then chickens, we also, we always had chickens and a rooster and we had fresh eggs, we had a chicken coop. We had two pear trees, two apple trees, six peach trees, a cherry tree, an apricot tree, and an enormous garden, all on this little plot of land. And, and, uh, and of course, in that garden, we grew everything. I remember we had a strawberry patch. We had, uh, we grew all these fresh vegetables and my mother would can all this stuff. So all winter we had peaches and pears and well, apples, but we didn't, she didn't can the apple, we had, we had couple, three barrels in the basement yeah. that we kept the apples in. And, um, and, uh, and then we would butcher, my dad would butcher something every year in the fall, there'd be something to butcher, a calf or a hog or something like that. And uh, people shake their heads at this these days, but my mother actually canned meat. My and, mom did too. Oh, is that right? Yeah. You know, people say, how do you do that? You put can no, it's in jars, big old mason jars and stuff like that. And, and I always tell people also, I said, you know, we never waste anything. We ate the hearts, the tongues, the livers, the kidneys, 
the tripe. We didn't, I, we never called it tripe. That was sort of a Southern phrase or mm -hmm. something. But my mother being from the old country knew all this stuff. So we always ate everything. And so I always say, you know, I grew up very poor, but I was never hungry. And we always had fresh food to eat, fresh eggs, fresh vegetables. Even in the wintertime, we ate because we had it all canned and we had it in the cellar. And um, so as life goes on uh, and I grow older and through college, military and all that, I remembered how good those things tasted. And all of a sudden I'm eating stuff that has no flavor. <laughs> so wait, this, this doesn't taste like the meats I used to have or the carrots I used to have or the, uh, what else did she owe? The, just the, all the vegetables we used to have. They just didn't taste the same. And, uh, and peaches were hard. And, well, about that time, I was, I was out of the military and I started running for Congress and I ran into a guy who had long hair and a beard. And he wrote a book. Hard Tomatoes, Hard Times, Jim Hightower. <laughs> you, remember, you remember Jim? Oh, yeah. Anyway, so we became friends, and I read his book, and I thought, you know, that guy's on to something. <laughs> you know, how we're moving away from that. Mm -hmm. And so thus began sort of my interest legislatively uh, after I got into Congress in 74. I forget when that book came out. About that time. Right around then, yeah. Somewhere right around there. And, uh, and then, uh, so I, I, I got to thinking more about big farms and little farms and how much we were able to do on a small plot of land to feed a family of, well, six, well, actually more, six kids, two adults, eight people. And we basically lived on an acre of land. I mean, well, I'm, we bought other stuff too, I'm sure, but, uh, but we got most of our food there and it was always fresh. Um, I got on the Ag Committee in 1975 uh, in the House, I got elected. And uh, I got on with a guy from Minnesota by the name of Rick Noland. Oh yes. Who in 2017 is back in the <laughs> Back on the Agriculture <laughs> back Committee. Back on the Ag Committee. So Rick Noland and I were, there were others too on the Ag Committee, but we sort of, formed a partnership and um, he was from Minnesota. And I remember the first thing we tried to do in a farm bill of, I don't know, 76, 77. 77, yeah. 77 farm bill. Yeah. Okay, so I'd been in one term reelected, so we're in 77. And Nolan and I were had this crazy idea that, well, not a crazy idea, we knew, I mean, I knew from reading and just history that the federal government since World War II had been actively involved in encouraging bigger farms. Through all their policies, everything pushed farmers towards getting bigger. Uh, so we had this idea that, that support prices for corn, beans weren't covered yet, uh, corn, program crops, but we focus mostly on corn, that the support prices ought to be such that the smaller farmer got more and the bigger farmer got less. And so it was like, 
and I, I, I can't remember exactly, but it was like, you know, for the first thousand bushels, you've got parity prices or maybe even more than parity. And for the next thousand, you got less and less and less. So that the bigger you are, the less you got until you finally got nothing. You just got it on the first, uh, first production level. So it helped smaller farmers more than it helped bigger farmers. And I remember Bob Pogue, who was <laughs> chair of the Ag Committee, said, uh, well, he wasn't. He got deposed. But he was still on the Ag Committee. But I remember him saying once, that that was wrong. He said, every bushel of corn ought to be supported by the same, by the same price. Every bushel. Well, that meant the bigger you are, the more you got. And the more you got, the more you were able to bid up the price of land compared to your neighbors. So it was actively encouraging this growth. And so we didn't get anywhere with our bill, of course. But that was sort of my first foray into trying to focus on family farms and small farms and that kind of thing. It was just two weeks ago was the 40th anniversary of the signing of the 1977 Farm Bill. So wow. 40 years ago. Wow. So the food stamp act, still the the model, the yeah. best food stamp bill that we ever passed. Um, yeah. But Title I of the 1977 Farm Bill is the Family Farm Policy Act and payment limitations. That's you don't payment. get until you get you have to get to Title II before you get to commodity programs. <laughs> title One is payment limitations. Payment limitations. Yep. Wow, okay. that was in 77. Hard to imagine today Title I being payment limitations. <laughs> well, I remember there were some big fights over that too. Yeah. Payment limitations. But some of these farmers were making a lot of money on those payments. As I said, every bushel of corn. So the more you produce, the more you got. Do you remember what the limit was at that time? 50. 50,000. 50,000. 50, yeah. yeah. My gosh. Yeah. But there was ways around it. Oh, yeah. Oh, my gosh. Then as we went ahead, farmers got ways of, of subdividing or having other family members and and all kinds of ingenious ways of yeah. getting around. That. At, the, at that time, it seemed like it was really solid. But then the, oh. the abuses started mounting and mounting and mounting. And, yeah. Yeah. Well, very good. I, we're off to a wonderful start. I. Uh, I, as one can tell in watching this interview, is that, that Senator Harkin and Ferd are longtime acquaintances. And the reason is, is Ferd spent a lot of time, I think, working with you and uh, Senator yeah. and with your staff on moving the many of these pieces yes, many, forward. Many, many years. So yeah. I want to uh, have Ferd more or less take over now this discussion and kind of take you through some of the key pieces of uh, legislation and that sort of thing going forward. Okay, well, great. You know, maybe maybe starting with um, when you came over to the Senate and it was a farm bill year in 1985, which was the first farm bill that really treated conservation as a fully legitimate farm bill issue. Um, of course, the Conservation Reserve Program and conservation compliance so that right. farmers had to do basic soil conservation in order to qualify for payments. Um, so that sort of put conservation, you know, sort of more front and center in the farm bill in, in, a, in a modest way as we look back on it, but that sort of opened the door to, you know, many of your accomplishments that followed in the years later. So just as my accomplishments it all started with the coalition anyway. <laughs> so I, I would just happen to be in the right place. Yeah. To be helpful. 
Well, yeah, and none of these things would have happened if you uh, hadn't well. led the charge. But, you know, I, I'm tempted to, you know, fast forward right away to 2002 and 2008 when you're chairing. But, you know, I want to start more early on in this yeah. in this conservation yeah, story. So, so we had this, you know, initial 1985, but then the farm crisis is happening at the same time. Um, and um, so the National Sustainable Agriculture Coalition really forms because of the farm crisis and, you know, sort of saying how are mid, how are mid-scale family farms going to possibly stay in business if they don't want to get super large and become a mega farm, they want to stay at family size, support their rural community. What can they do? You know, how do you get how do you get your production costs under control by doing lower input systems? How do you get value added for your product to get more money on the other end? So that, that sort of was the era that we came into existence was trying to deal with, with that. And of course, we immediately looked to conservation as one of the ways that the government could support family farm income, but do it in a way that also supported a public good um, in terms of, you know, environmental protection and natural resource protection. And so the, that 85 bill was so important because it put conservation front and center in the farm bill. Obviously, conservation reserve was in part because Congress was interested in getting supply under control and trying to get prices up in the farm crisis context. So, you know, we had a 30 five million acre conservation reserve that took a lot of land out of production. Um, but that began to shift then in the 1990 Farm Bill. And um, in we added the Wetlands Reserve Program. Mm -hmm. We, uh, uh, well, we did a lot of things in 1990, but in the conservation arena, you led the charge on the Water Quality Incentives yeah, Program, which, you know, is is amazingly just as relevant in 2017 as it was in 1990. More so in Iowa. Yeah. I'm sure other states, too. Yeah. But um, and what are your recollections of that? I mean, that obviously then became the precursor to what is today the EQIP program or the Environmental Quality Incentives right. Program. But that really started with your water quality. Was it the 90 Farm Bill? 1990. Boy, I would have thought it was later than that. I really thought that would have been on a later farm. Well, that early, huh? Yeah. Well, <clears throat> well, even at that time, we were having uh, water problems. Um, <clears throat> well, it kind of dovetails with EQIP. When did EQIP come in? 96. 96. Because, okay, now this is making sense. Uh, even at that time, uh, a lot of the practices of, of animal agriculture, at least in my state, well, all over, was changing. The small farms that I grew up with and farmer would have a few cattle, some hogs, they did chores in the morning, in the afternoon, in the evening, began to go into bigger operations, bigger and bigger operations. <clears throat> well, it's one thing for a number of farmers to have a few hogs spread around and maybe some cows or calves and, uh, you know, usually you'd take the manure and dry it, spread it out with a manure spreader. 
but these bigger ones got bigger and they just let the manure pile up and it was going into streams and things like that. So we're getting a lot of complaints about that. And so uh, we did this water quality, I thought it was called the Water Quality Incentives Program. Right, that that's right. Yeah, not yeah. improvement, incentives, incentives program. program. Yeah. And then I guess uh, now it comes back, by the time we get to 95, we figured there had to be something else to help uh, stem the problem of the, uh, uh, they call our large animal confinement. CAFOs, yeah. CAFOs, yeah. yeah, CAFOs, concentrated animal feeding, feeding operations. Well, I'm getting ahead of myself, but here's what I remember about that. So we put this together, but then again, it became a kind of a program where the bigger you are, the more you got. Just the opposite of what we wanted to do. That was very frustrating because uh, we were trying to focus on smaller. And so a lot of these big CAFOs, invaded this program, God, they were getting a lot of money and it enabled them to even get bigger and having having even more uh, uh, animal feeding operations. And they were doing a lousy job of, of, of putting in pits, ponds and stuff to hold manure. And they were always leaking and breaking down and all that kind of stuff. But they just kept getting more money through the EQIP program. So I, I, after that, I was never much of a fan of the EQIP program, and I kept going after it. But uh, the big farm bureaus and the people like that and the cattlemen and the pork producers, that was their big deal. That's how I remember Right. It. No, that, that's right. And, and the interesting sidelight on that was in the 96 Farm Bill, the really largest CAFOs were prohibited from being part of EQIP. And the reason for that was... Mm -hmm. Bob Dole was running for president in the Iowa caucuses, oh. and he he then offered the amendment to CAFOs could still qualify, but the really big CAFOs couldn't, couldn't qualify. But then in the next farm bill after that, that got reversed, and everybody could qualify. That's um, what but, I remember. But but <laughs> but thanks to Bob Doe running in the <laughs> Iowa caucuses, we we were able to to huh. limit that a little bit in the 1996 so bill. A few years they were limited. I, yeah, I don't remember. Yeah. I just remember the big ones coming in and getting us and just frustrating. But that happened later on. Huh? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so you know, continuing the the sort of conservation story then. So then your water quality incentive program sort of morphed into the environmental quality incentives program. And yeah, yeah. the 96 bill, we also had something called the conservation farm option, uh, which never really got taken off the ground. It, it was in the farm bill. It it was, I consider what, what year is this? 96. 96. So it was sort of the precursor to the Conservation Security Act. Uh -huh. But for a variety of reasons, it never actually happened, but it was in the 96 bill. So then a couple of years later, you got a whole lot of people in Iowa talking about Conservation Security Act. Right, right. So pick up the story there. Well, all I remember, I, well, okay. I remember a trip I took to Europe with Andy Fish. Uh -huh. uh, I remember people always saying, well, you know, they support their farmers over there. And, um, even more than here, uh, but they have small farms. And so I, I wanted to figure out how, they, what were they doing? So I remember Andy Fish and I we went, to, we went to Great Britain, we went to France, the Netherlands. Uh, 
someplace else. Anyway, we looked at hog operations. We looked at land operations. And it occurred to me on this trip that they were paying their farmers not on how much they produced, but on how they produce it. Mm-hmm. Were they good stewards of the soil? I thought, oh, this is ingenious. <laughs> and even the, you know, even, uh, even uh, uh, what am I thinking of? You know, the, the Dutch, they have all these hams and stuff, so they're very big in pork production, but they don't have any place to put it. I remember even at that time, we visited a, a hog operation in someplace in Amsterdam, I don't know where. And all along they would, they had the same hog operation where the hogs would defecate and urinate down through the slatted floors. They would pick up all this stuff and slurry it, putting it into a tank. And then there was a, uh, a long line and they would take stuff out of that. I remember one was sulfur and they would market the sulfur. Then they would take something else out and market that, take something else, clean it up. By the end thing, I will never forget this, they had a little spigot and you could drink a glass of water. <laughs> wow. <laughs> I said, well, now, if they can do that and make money, why can't we? But it was mostly the land stuff. And that's when I came back and began preaching about it's time to stop paying farmers under the, under the World War II program crops for what you grow and how much you grow. So there's program crops and then you get paid on how much. <clears throat> and start paying farmers for how they produce it. Are they good stewards of the soil? Do they improve water quality, um, habitat, tilth, which is an interesting word, soil tilth, health, healthy soil. Um, and so that's how this kind of thing came about. Yeah. Yeah. And then you guys got involved and started putting it all together for us. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I, I remember, uh, oh, it must have been 25 separate conference calls with uh, a whole bunch of academics and farmers and advocates, yeah. in, mostly in Iowa, some in uh, surrounding states, you know, going back and forth. And we, we would do a draft and I would do a summary and they would critique it and then we'd rewrite it. And, and Andy was involved. Andy was involved and Mark was involved. And, yeah. and Mark Alverson, our right. our staff director. Yeah. And so that became the Conservation Security Act. And then. Um, so that, that would have been in what farm bill was that? Then? So eventually it was 2002. Yeah. Two, well, it should have been 2001, but it didn't become law until 2002. That's right. Right. And so um, and I was able to stick it in there. Yeah. Yeah. And of course, so that was, uh, uh, you know, somewhat magical farm bill for two reasons. <laughs> One was we had, quote unquote, surpluses as far as the eye could see. Oh, yeah. So there was a big chunk of extra additional money laid on the farm bill table. But yes. politically, the important thing was Jim Jeffords woke up one day and decided to switch parties. Oh, that's right. That's how we <laughs> and got so, it. And so got in 2001, it, it was still Chairman Luger, but in, then in the midstream, it became Chairman Harkin. That's right. That's right. And I remember working on that. And, you know, it's interesting because uh, uh, you reminded me it was Larry. Very combat from yeah. Texas on that. So the House was Republican. We had a one vote margin in the Senate. Right. Um, but by that time, I and you, others have been working on this conservation security program. The idea of paying farmers. Oh, this is the other thing. See, in the past, we always paid conservation on <clears throat> land you took out of production. 
that was basically it. Um, CRP. But we knew more and more land was going to be going into production. So how do you incentivize farmers to have conservation practices on, quote, working lands? Yes. That was a whole day. And we had some experiments. I remember two things I remember. We had uh, done a thing in southwest Iowa where we, I got some money, probably through appropriations, because I had those two hats. I had appropriations and and uh, and authorizing. So I got some money and we set up a rotational grazing operation mm -hmm. on CRP land, mm -hmm. on CRP. In other words, the idea you couldn't graze on CRP because of cows, would, uh, it would mess it all up and tear up the soil and crap would run down. And so they forbid that. So we had this experiment in Southwest Iowa. I remember visiting it a few times where you do rotational. Now you did have to put up some fencing mm -hmm. and it required a little bit of extra labor because you had to go out and move the fences around and stuff. But out of that, we learned that you could actually do rotational grazing on CRP land and still protect the soil and the cover cop and stuff like that. So that was the idea was how do you <clears throat> get farmers to do conservation practices on working lands, uh, 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 minimum tillage, for example, uh, uh, stopping moldboard plowing in the fall. Uh, all the time I was a kid growing up, farmers go out there and they just wasted so much money, but they thought it looked pretty. Moldboard, turn that dirt over in the nice fall. Clean was the word. Oh there, yeah, right? it looks so nice and that kind of stuff. And it was nonsense. Uh, <laughs> I remember in my area, uh, farmers who started doing, uh, actually they would not plow in the fall. They would just uh, maybe in the spring disc a little bit, and then they would drill mm -hmm. plant their corn. And I remember other farmers would say, oh, that's, that's ugly. Yeah. That doesn't <laughs> look good. Yeah. Well. <laughs> According to them, it did look, but boy, it sure saved soil. And when the wind would blow, you know, it was, it didn't blow away a lot of that soil into the ditches. And so that, that all started about that time. Uh, but that was the idea. And then the, uh, to get to pay farmers for, again, back to what I learned here, not, not for how much they grew or what they grow, but how they grow. How, how they do it and, and they, they do it in a conserving, in a conserving and the same way with animals too. Right. But I don't, I don't think we did a very good job on animals. We still have a problem. Indeed. The big, the big operations. I was wondering for to get to somewhere along the lines the word stewardship was added to that. Yeah, that yeah, yeah. So, <laughs> right, right. It started as conservation security program in 2002. And then in 2008, it got renamed conservation stewardship program. And but it's still spelled CSP. So, <laughs> so we got this conservation security program in the 2002 farm. I was chairman. And I remember Larry Combest, the, the, the Republicans and the, and the people in the House, they were all focused on the big program crops and the support prices, this and that. And I remember we did a little faint on them saying, well, no, we got we can't do this or do that or do this. We actually had conferences in those days where we'd get together. But I had this conservation security program 
just a piddling little thing. And they finally, in exchange probably for some of my support for some of their programs I held my nose on, we were able to get this in. Uh, but not the ink wasn't dry on the bill. And we had the election. Of course, we lost the Senate, so I'm back again as ranking member. And the administration under George Bush, well, he didn't know anything about it, but I forget who the Secretary of Agriculture was. But anyway, they would not implement that program. You may remember more about that fur than I do, but God, it was awful. Yeah. I mean, we had just a little bit, we just kept at it uh, and not letting them do away with that program. Yeah. But I, now I they, can't they, st they started it so that it was limited to a small number of watersheds in each state. So uh, instead of being a comprehensive nationwide yeah. program, it was very... That's what it was. Oh, very oh, spotty yeah. participation. That's right. I okay, I see, I jogged my memory. See, I rem that's because I remember as the first year went by and they, were, they didn't want to put the money in that we had authorized. And then I, kept, I would hear from people in Iowa, how come they get it and we don't? Exactly. That was the deal. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Yeah. It was the whole targeted watershed approach. And yeah. and they, they didn't stay the same from year to year. So one year this area had it, next year a different area. It was unworkable. But eventually, eventually we got that fixed got that <laughs> and uh, yeah. changed the name in the process. And, you know, going back to the whole working lands focus. So, you know, conservation, whether you go all the way back to the soil bank or the conservation reserve program, even the wetlands reserve easement thing, these were all taking land out of production. Out of production. But starting with water quality incentive program and then into EQIP and then into CSP, now we're at the place where a majority of the conservation title is working land. So yeah. it's been a major transformation. And CSP itself is an 80 million acre program now. The is it 80 now? 80 million acres. The biggest conservation oh, oh. program by acres that we've ever had in the history of the country. So I it's. Know, I thought it was around 50 or 60 million. I, yeah. I, it's up to 80 million now. It's up to 80 million. Oh, and uh, hopefully, hopefully in the 2018 farm bill, we'll, <laughs> we'll keep it going. So, um, so it's, it's remarkable. And, and it's had, I think, a real impact. People are doing cover cropping, crop yeah. rotation, yeah. conservation tillage, um, you know, advanced nutrient management, all sorts of important things on the one hand. On the other hand, it's never really quite made it to being a green payments program as that's understood in Europe, where mm. you know this is really, this is really what you do <laughs> to to have a farm program. We still have our traditional commodity program, and we have CSP, which is great. We're much better off for having it. But any thoughts on you know why why is that? Why can't we ever get to the place where we can pay for how you produce instead of how much you produce? Well, if we ever if we could just get a president that would focus on it, get a secretary of agriculture and really push it, mm -hmm. uh, we might start to get over that hump. Uh, but it's still the problem, Bird, you know as well as I do, it's the big farms and then against, you know, poo-pooing little farms, or organics, uh, that type of thing. We've made some inroads. Yeah. The beginning farmer program and, uh, if I'm, if I'm not mistaken, I think there's a something in the CSP maybe or someplace that 
gives more to beginning farmers. Am I mistaken on that? There, there's, there's, a, like there's a set aside for beginning farmers so that they compete within their same pool so they don't have to compete against okay. Okay. older fully. I knew there was something there. Yeah, yeah. But I don't know. The answer to your question, I mean, I think it's just, you know, uh, I, I, I shouldn't keep pointing my finger at the Farm Bureau, but I will. I mean, the Farm Bureau has been reluctant mm -hmm. uh, to be supportive of this kind of move for green payments. Uh, they still adhere to the old program crop type payments. Uh, and then you've got some people on the Ag Committee, like Pat Roberts, Senator Roberts and stuff, who just, you know, keeps calling it production agriculture. If you're big, yeah. you're production. Yeah. But if you're small, you're not. Well, but the small farmers <laughs> produce things, <laughs> the healthy foods. They take care of the soil. But there's still this old concept uh, around that. I don't know. I don't have a better answer for. Yeah. It. Maybe okay. you have a better answer. I don't know. It it um, it, it just seems to me that well, back when you were on the House Agriculture Committee, there were like robust debates about what is the purpose of commodity programs. Right. Today, I don't find that to be the case. It's, there's, the, we have, you know, 10 different variants of commodity programs, each one unique to a crop or a region, and nobody really debates why we do it. We just do it. <laughs> um, and, yeah. I don't know until until people want to serve on the agriculture committee for reasons other than protecting their home state commodity, and that's about it, isn't it? People are on the ag committee. It was my uh, my thought later on. It was just these later farm bills when I wasn't here that everybody had their own little deal, protect their own little interest. Yeah, that was about it. Yeah. So, so much so that in the, the most recent farm bill, they had to put in a huge amount of money for farm service agency to contract out with land grant universities to develop decision support systems so that farmers could figure out which of the various variants <laughs> would return the biggest paycheck to of them. Course. <laughs> and it's just like, really, that's what we've evolved to. So it's kind of interesting but the good news there is that you know we have a very healthy conservation title and conservation stewardship program is going gangbusters well if we can keep increasing that's encouraging for me to hear there's 80 million and if we the next farm bills next is 2018. 2018 yeah i don't hold much problem i don't know we'll see i don't know with this with this white house now and congress I hope we can hold our own. Yeah, I think that would be the objective is to, to hold our own. Well, so, I've heard, I was thinking now maybe, unless you want to add to this, this is fascinating. You know, one of the things that I've talked to a couple of people about before I've done this interview that are supporters for this is they consider you to be the champion for organic farming. Well, um, we started it. Yeah, again, uh, that's where yeah, we were. We definitely yeah. want to go into that. Yeah, yeah. Let's copy yeah. the SARE program and those sort of things. Yeah, yeah. So let's go. Let's go back and and trace that a little bit. So the 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 nineteen ninety farm bill. Pat Leahy was chairing here on the committee, and the National Organic Program gets right, approved. Right. The Sustainable Agriculture Research and Education Program, the SARE program, goes into that farm bill. The you know the first time USDA has really set aside money to do sustainable ag research. 
Um, and uh, so that that's really the starting point. But then later on, when you're chairman in 2002, we get organic certification cost share. That's right. And well, that was the big deal. And the organic research program. So both those were really big deals. Now, correct me if I'm wrong, but I remember uh, a lot of my friends in Iowa wanted to be organic farmers. And I learned then from these meetings that in order to be certified organic, you had to go, what sticks in my mind, three years? Right. Was it three three years without using any uh, pesticides or herbicides on that land? We always called it the valley of death because <laughs> if you stop using these, your production went down, but you didn't get the higher prices that organics got, so you had to get through this whole thing. Now, some of my friends who were farming in Iowa were able to do it because their land was paid for, uh, handed down from their parents. They could do that. But if you were just starting out, you couldn't afford to do that. So that's how we started this cost share or uh, yeah. certification. Certification, certification, certification cost share. Co yeah. Certification cost share. And I think that helped quite a bit. I, it, think, it, I think it helped people transition to be, to be organic farmers. And we found more and more people, you know, going into organics. Yeah. And just to show you how far that's come, it when you authorized it and got it funded, it was run through state departments of agriculture primarily. That's who actually delivered it to farmers. In the in the final year of the Obama administration, they've actually moved the program to farm service agencies. So it's just like any other program. Oh you my go to your county office and you sign up for organic certification cost share. So it's it's really, um, I feel like that's a symbolic of now it's it's part and parcel of our farm policy. Um, if we can keep the farm service agency alive, didn't they make some, have they made some runs on? Closing offices. Closing yeah. offices and yeah. all that kind of stuff. We'll see what this administration does. Wow. They haven't, they haven't said anything about that yet, wow. but. We'll see what happens. So yeah, that's these are some things I've forgotten or I didn't. Yeah, but organic agriculture is also relevant to another thing you raised just a moment ago, which is new and beginning farmers. Because oh, yeah. whether it's organic or local food or value added, they, you know, the way to break into agriculture unless you inherit it all is to find some niche, that's right. and organic can be an important piece huge, of that. Huge. Oh yeah, I know numbers of farmers in Iowa that started out uh, with a small plot of land. They were organic or they later farmers markets too. So they did organics, they did farmers markets. And uh, it was usually the case where the husband and wife, both probably, worked someplace. But they had, they had enough time left to farm a small plot and grow some organic crops. And they got big money for it, for, for that little brush. And they were then able to accumulate some capital and expand their operation. And I think I know a few of them that did organics, but then they did non-organics on some other land. But they always kept the organic thing going. So mm -hmm. there's a, some split personalities on this, I, I, in my state anyway, I know, yeah. on this. Yeah, and I think that that's actually increasingly common, I think, because yeah. some of the, you know, more conventional 
farmers out there are saying, well, you know, commodity prices aren't very good right now. Maybe we should try this. So I think you're seeing more people doing that. This is probably the wrong time, but just jogging in my memory. I remember having a hearing once. What farm bill was it? Well, I don't know. But it, maybe it wasn't even a farm. I had a hearing once. I was in the Senate. I'm chair of the committee. And we had a hearing. And it had to do with how much land did you need in order to be, um, you know, to, to make a living? Mm-hmm. And so <laughs> I sandbagged it. I, this is where I had Maria Roseman, mm-hmm. Ron and Maria, but I had Maria there and she was my last witness. And then we had the Farm Bureau and the, the corn growers and the soybean association. We had all these people lined up talking about, you know, small farms can't make it. You got a lot of land and blah, blah, blah. And organics won't. Anyway, we went down the list. So I had Maria there. They have a farm in Western Iowa. Mm-hmm. I think it's about a section. So I don't know, maybe it's 500 acres, 600 acres, something like that. They had switched to all organics, not only in their crops, but in their livestock also. And uh, so I asked her about how much land they had. And it's, I, I think it's around. Yeah, I'm I think close. They're about a section, yeah. About a section, about 500 acres, 600 acres, 640 acres being a section. Um, and some of it was pasture land. And so I asked her about her operation and uh, organics and what they were doing. And, uh, and on that fairly small plot of land, which would have been big in my childhood, um, they raised a family sent their kids to college. One of their sons was back in the farming operation with them and they were doing quite well. And so I'll never forget that hearing. Yeah, maybe you were there for, for it. it was just wonderful. She was just, she played the great, Maria played the great straight person and <laughs> saying, no, you don't need 2000 acres of land. You don't need all that stuff. You, if you do it right and uh, you focus on it, you can make a good living. And, and now they had, I think one of their kids back in the operation with them, which I think is still true today. Yeah. Wonderful. Yeah, that's terrific. So another topic we should touch on is in the 2008 Farm Bill, your energy title. First time. First time we put energy in there in the, in the, and you know what? I got help from Dick Luger on that. Uh, I remember Luger was very helpful on that. Uh, In the 2008 Farm Bill, we focused on, uh, um, a, a couple of things. One was a, um, was that the REAP program? REAP, yep, Rural Energy for America program. Rural Energy Assistance Program. One of the aspects was geared towards, um, now you have to help me, out, like community-based or uh, uh, community-based, town-based, uh, area-based type energy production. Mm-hmm. The other one was focused on individual farmers, right? Where they could get some money and loans, maybe loans and/or grants, Lo- yeah. loans and grants to put in their own energy systems. So that was the two thing, and and one of the first I remember of that was that I saw in my state was in um, uh, I think uh, uh, the name of the town that's uh, green uh, green and. Uh, uh, 
near Scranton. Uh, I'm sorry, I've lost the name of the town. Uh, anyway, the community had had applied and got some money, and they, I think they put four or five wind generators up, something like that, for the community. I was like a godsend. Yeah. And so they got community-based. And then we started finding individual farmers who were doing mostly wind in Iowa. Mm -hmm. Most, that was mostly wind energy. And cutting their costs down, even though we didn't have um, reverse uh, uh, net metering. We didn't have net metering. But even with the grants and, and the loans, the farmer could put up a, a and they could, oh, it wasn't just uh, generating electricity, it was also saving exactly. energy. So they could do um, uh, insulation or double pane windows. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I remember uh, one operation, he uh, insulated his, uh, his uh, not a barn, like a, like a ship, like a, Thing where he kept his livestock in the wintertime and stuff like that. So he had, had done all this stuff and he put in double pane windows facing the south. Mm. Saved him a ton of money and yeah. just in yeah. heating the darn place during the winter. Yeah. So I remember that's right, the energy. And how's yeah. that doing today? It's still alive. You know, it, um, it, uh. It, it needs to be renewed every farm bill. That's an ongoing topic that many of the more innovative programs like value-added producer grants and parts of the energy title and the, the local food and farmer's market program, they're funded through the farm bill, but every farm bill you have to come back and find new money for them. Mm -hmm. They're not permanent like commodity programs or food stamps or crop insurance subsidies not are. Not mandatory. They're mandatory, but they're not permanent mandatory. So oh. every farm bill, you have to find a way to yeah, pay for them. They just so, extend it for the life of the farm bill. Yeah, so we're back in that position now. Um, so the, so that's another one I did want to mention. Is, is the, the REAP farmers, still working? Though? REAP is working, and that, thankfully, now is the only, it's the only energy title program that has permanent mandatory funding. So it's, oh, in a good, oh. it's in a good spot. Oh, that's nice. Yeah, that's really good. Um, but the Farmer's Market Promotion Program is another one that yeah, you championed market. back in the 2002 bill. That's still alive. It's now called the Farmer's Market and Local Food Promotion Program. Um, and local food. So, promotion. yeah, that, 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 that got added in the 2014 Farm Bill um, through Debbie Stabenow's work. Um, but it's still basically the same program. That actually, actually, that's one of the best things we ever did. It really uh, is. I'm saying you, too, and the, and the Sustainable Ag Coalition was that farmer's market um, promotion Promotion, program. yep. My gosh. I mean, there's farmer's markets all over the place now. Yeah. All these small towns. And my wife, just this morning before I came in for this, my wife went to a farmer's market in a local library in Alexandria, Virginia. Hmm. I mean, just things like that. And people come there and buy a lot of stuff. So... And again, it's nice. a really important opportunity for newer and beginning farmers Oh, yeah. To break in, to have a market that's a high value market, yeah, um, yeah. you know, and then if they can get started, they can go on and have a wholesale part of their business or sell to institutions. But the farmer's market's often that first step or uh, community supported agriculture, which that program also supports. I got to I got to I got to uh, get rid of a gripe here yeah. that I have. <clears throat> We love going to farmer's markets. We'll buy whatever we can during the season at farmer's markets in Iowa. Mm -hmm. Huge one in Des Moines. But you know what I found? More and more of these big farmer markets, 
people are coming in and they go to some local wholesaler yeah. and they buy it and they bring it there. And you can tell who they are. I just don't buy stuff from them. I'm sorry. I, I'll buy stuff from people that actually are growing it and you get to know them. Uh, but it's just a gripe I have. It, it's, it's gotten even more extreme now because now you can go into big supermarket chains and above the produce section, it says farmer's market. <laughs> oh, no. Oh. <laughs> or community supported agriculture, which was, is another great, you know, subscription based agriculture, which is a great way for farmers to right. link up with consumers. Sure. But now you have things that are calling themselves consu consumer supported agriculture, or community supported agriculture that are really just wholesale businesses, yeah, just but wholesale. they change the name to protect yeah. Yeah. <laughs> their sales. But I still. Uh, and this is just a little aside. Uh, well, I remember a long time ago when this whole thing started, we had a little farmer market in West Des Moines and I went to it once and, and there was one farmer there that sold organic chickens, the kind of chickens I eat when I was a kid that pick in the ground. And so the first time I bought one there, he sold them whole and you just cut them up. It was easy. But, or bake them, they're just delicious. Uh, and then he also sold uh, eggs. The difference in those eggs compared to what you'd buy at Safeway or whatever, mm -hmm. was just amazing. The color, the flavor. And so but I remember going there and, uh, you know, we were one of, I mean, we'd buy a chicken and we'd buy some eggs, never a big deal. As the years rolled by, the lines got longer and longer. And if you weren't there at 7 a.m. in the morning, <laughs> you missed. Because yeah. people started getting onto it. Now, this was over a few years period of time. So people got onto it and uh, uh, it, it became, I'll never forget just that one small farmer out west of Des Moines doing that. Well, you know, it made me think too, for Senator, about um, all your work on health and uh, yeah. linking like even the ability of, of people on food stamps to be able to get food at the farmers that, markets. That's right. That oh, that's linking. the other thing. Oh gosh, I forget when we did that. But uh, you go to farmers markets now, and you can, and they they'll have the sign. We accept uh, the. It's called something else now. It's called not food stamps. Snap. 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 Yeah. We accept that's Snap vouchers. Yeah, here. and then yeah. then there's also the WIC farmers market nutrition program. So both of those are, you know, really, uh, uh, you know, just yeah. an accepted part of the program. Now. That's amazing. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, you know, really linking the fact that we can get this good food now and how it can support the health of people all over the country yeah. is something you really yeah. bring together. Yeah. That was an achievement in itself. In fact, I was just listening to a radio report driving in before this interview this morning. I was listening to radio's NPR story about obesity in the world, and there was a, some report about how the uh, globally obesity has increased tenfold or something like that in the last few years. And they were talking about this, and I, whoever was the uh, person giving the interview, uh, she said that uh, that question was asked, well, what, you know, what can be done about this? She said, oh, you gotta start with kids early. They have to start eating good food early and healthy food early so that they establish lifetime patterns. Mm -hmm. That gets into my 
uh, fruit and vegetable snack brokery. Yes, <laughs> yes, <cool>. right. <laughs> uh, well, that's just another one, anyway. That's good, though. I'm, yeah. Let's get, so what was that about? Well, again, this was the 2002 Farm Bill. Mm -hmm. 2002 Farm Bill. I don't know, where the hell did I? I'm sorry, I lost how I came up with this idea. Maybe you guys. No, it wasn't us this time. <laughs> um, well, I'm sorry. I, I don't know. Someone came up with. I'll have to go back and ask my staff. Well, anyway, the idea about it was to get fresh fruits and vegetables to kids in school. So I, I'm chair of the committee, and I wanted to push it. And I got it in as a pilot program. We had four states, Iowa, Michigan, Ohio, and Indiana. Total of 100 schools, 25 in a state, some rural, some urban, high schools, grade schools. And I think, I forget how much money I had, but it wasn't very much. Well, I don't know, three or $4 million, something like that for this pilot program. And they let me have it because I let them have whatever they wanted. You know, I'm saying they, the big farm groups. So I got it in. And then again, the administration kept trying to stop it. But I'm on the appropriations committee. See, so I was able to use that to push the funding. And I remember going out and visiting school. This was, was a snack program and it had to be fresh fruits and vegetables. Well, that's the other thing. In all these years, with all these supports that we had for program crops, we never supported fruits and vegetables. Just, they were never part of the farm bill. Um, so now I had a little thing in there where they're part of the farm bill. I guess they never really wanted to be, or I, it, I don't know. Anyway, they never were a part of it. So now they were, and they saw how this could be a um, demand pull for fresh fruits and vegetables. Yeah. And so these four states, and I went out and visited some schools. I remember I visited a school in Michigan, and I visited one in Ohio, and I visited a couple in Iowa to see how they were doing. And, and, uh, and later on, even though I wasn't chair, when the chair would have hearings, I guess that would be Luger again. Was it Luger? After 2002, I think yeah. It's, it's yeah. Luger. And he was nice. He was very good about this. So he'd let me bring some people in and talk about this nascent program <laughs> starting. And uh, I remember <laughs> interesting things about in the beginning how uh, some principals and school boards, when they testified, were opposed to it. Kids would make a mess and they'd throw stuff all over and all that. Kind of. And we stipulated that it sh should not be in the lunchroom. It should be either in a kiosk in the hall or in the classroom. Mm -hmm. And it could be a snack program in the morning or in the afternoon. Or We were just trying different experiments. And uh, uh, I remember, uh, so it had been in existence for a year and a half over in 2003, 2004. Specter, Arlen Specter is my co-chair on the Appropriations Committee, mm -hmm. on the Health Committee, but right. he's not on the Ag approach. <laughs> so he comes to me and says, he'd heard about this. Why can't I have it in Pennsylvania? So we'll put the money in Pennsylvania. <laughs> so he did. He put money in and we got to Pennsylvania. Thad Cochran comes up to me, 
said, say, you heard about this thing. He's getting some people from Mississippi. Can we get Mississippi? I said, sure, Thad. He's on a pro. Put some money into it. And so then we went wow. to Pennsylvania and Mississippi and well, maybe there were a couple of other states. I don't know that we just got people on the appropriation committee, put more money in. Um, and then let's see what happened. We had a lot of stories about testimony and stuff. Some schools were um, putting uh, putting these on the buses in rural areas. So the kids would come to school and they would eat the stuff on the bus. And I remember we had this <laughs> testimony uh, from this, I don't know, one school district. I don't know where it was from. And talked about how when they first did this, kids were throwing apple cores or banana peels or whatever on the floor. Bus drivers were getting upset. And till someone said, well, they went down to their local Safeway or whatever and got little plastic bags, put them on the back seats of all the seats. Problem solved. <laughs> Problem solved. Kids, they just didn't have a place to put them, so they throw them on the floor. When you put the bags, they put them in the bag. Just problem solved. And then we found, I remember when I visited, we had we had a high school in Des Moines, North High School. I went there one, and we get our first strawberry crop in Iowa before the school was out. And they would bring in the fresh strawberries, and they would cut them, clean them, put them out. By 10 a.m. in the morning, there wasn't a strawberry left in the, in the school. Uh, I always tell these stories because I was fascinated by a lot of this. I went to a school once, uh, it wasn't in Iowa, I think it was in Michigan, and they had kiwi fruit. Now see, again, we wanted to focus on only fruits that were grown in the United States, but kiwis were grown in California, see. Uh, and I remember being in this third grade class, and that morning they were having kiwi fruit. And this teacher had done a wonderful thing. Uh, she was, when they would have a fruit, they would uh, draw a map. Where's it from? How's it grown? Mm -hmm. Teaching these, it was, it was really wonderful. I learned two things that morning, I'll never forget. <laughs> I'd eaten kiwi fruit before. It's, it's always a mess to peel them. Oh, yeah. just, but I knew they were high in vitamin C and all that. So I, but I never bought very much. But every time I did, I thought, this is a, too much work to eat <laughs> kiwi fruit. I learned two things that morning. I learned that a kiwi fruit takes male and female. You have to have two together. Well, I didn't know that. Little girl sitting there, and they got this kiwi fruit, and they're talking about where it comes from and stuff like that. And she said, well, okay, go ahead. She had a plastic spoon. And she took her spoon and stabbed it in the middle, opened it up, and scooped it out and ate it. <laughs> why didn't I think of that? <laughs> all those years, a third grade kid teaches me how to eat a kiwi fruit. Oh, it always stuck in my mind. But anyway, as the years went by, so I now I'm back in chairmanship again in 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 two thousand and, uh, and seven. seven, yeah, seven and eight for that next farm bill. And so we learned some things. So what do we do? We changed the program. No more high schools. Well, again, we had a limited amount of money yeah. and we found high schools. Were not. That's another story. And that has to do with the school lunch program and Tom Vilsack, but that's another story. I'm talking about the snack program. And so we carved out high schools and we put in a, um, a factor for, if your elementary school had a high, proportion of free and reduced price lunches where they had a lot of poor kids. You kind of got to the head of the line mm -hmm. to get the money. 
So we got a lot of these into the food desert areas and in, 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 in cities and things. Um, and we bumped up the money. I don't know. Gosh, I forget how much it is now, but it's in every state. Mm-hmm. Um, elementary schools only. Um, uh, what else was I thinking? Oh, I know what it is. So fresh fruits and vegetables. It became so successful that Dole, not Bob Dole, but Dole Company, company. started packaging just for this program. Mm. The first one I saw was a pineapple push-up because mm. pineapples were Hawaii, right? That's yeah. fantastic. So there's these little plastic things like, you know, kids get ice, not those ice things in them. You can get those now. Mm-hmm. Buy them in a grocery store. And they cut them and kids would push up that pineapple and eat it. Mm-hmm. Then we always had fresh apples and kids would eat apples. And then somehow Dole or somebody figured out how to slice the apples and put them in packages and they wouldn't turn brown. Right, right. I don't know how that do that, but so kids now get packs of sliced apples, eat, eat the sliced apples. Um, so it's still, and it's become a big deal with broccoli and cauliflower. Um, um, what else did they do with the small things like small, carrots, huh? Carrots. Probably. Oh, carrots are big. Yeah. Oh, carrots are big. Uh, carrots are big. Oh, spinach. You can get these little bags of spinach now. Now, I made a little compromise. Okay, if you, they get a little plastic thing of like ranch dressing or something. Okay, fine, fine. And they do that with the broccoli too. They'll get a little plastic thing and dip it in. Okay, fine. You got to make some compromises along the way. But kids are eating fresh spinach. Now, I'm coming back to what I heard on the radio this morning. This woman saying you got to start with kids earlier. Because kids develop a taste. And I learned this later on on my health committee, that when you're young and before you smoked and drank and did all the things and eating Kentucky Fried Chicken and all that junk food, when you're young, you taste things differently than as an adult. So when a kid in grade school eats fresh fruit, it has much more of a, an impact on their taste buds than it does for you or me. Right. Uh, and the same as vegetables too. When, you know, who, who likes steamed wilted broccoli? I don't, but <laughs> broccoli that's crisp and fresh, kids will eat that stuff. Yes. Yeah. And that's why I don't like, like even, even spinach. They might dip it a little bit, but it just tastes good. They get this little, little baby spinach things in the plastic bags. So my idea was, if you get kids eating this and liking it, they'll tell their parents, and their parents will buy more. But we have we had hearings on this, and I I never had any real hard data, but mostly anecdotal about parents now buying stuff because their kids say, "I want to eat that at home." Mm-hmm. Now, here's the last I'm going to go off on this long tirade because this was a really favorite program of mine. Yeah. Uh, when we initially got this through, I had to make a compromise. I didn't like it, but we allowed dried fruit. Mm-hmm. When I became chairman again in 08, I took that out. We got rid of the because that's just concentrated sugar. Well, I remember Debbie Stabenow <laughs> having me up in uh, Michigan. And who else was it? Michigan and uh, New Jersey. 
cranberries. They want these dried mm -hmm. cranberries that are just soaked with sugar. And so I met with up there some of their cranberry people. Oh, they wanted grape juice in the, the thing too. That's not, that's not, we don't have orange juice. We don't have grape juice. We don't have it. That's just concentrated sugar. So I had to meet with all of our cranberry people and our grape people. And <laughs> I finally, I said, Debbie, look, look how much sugar is in there. I got in front of them. When we were, I said, Debbie, look, we can't do this. And uh, by that, you know, Debbie started, I should, well, I can say this is historical. When Debbie came, she was quite large. She went on this tremendous diet program mm -hmm. and reduced. So I hit her at the right time mm -hmm. and said, look, blame me. Tell all those people that you're for them, but Harkin's a chair and he refuses it and he's got the votes. And she just blame me. So she did. <laughs> so she blamed me for it. And that, so we got the right. And then George Miller from California, my dear friend, he was always on my rear end about getting the dried fruit back in, but we were able to keep it out. <laughs> we were able to keep it out. And, uh, and then the nut people wanted in. And you know, there are certain nuts that are healthy. Walnuts, almonds, pistachios, are, are tree nuts are good. But I told them, no, you're not, this is fresh fruit and vegetable. Well, these are healthy and I, I, I got that. But as soon as we open the door to you, the peanut people are right behind you, <laughs> you know, because the peanut people wanted in. Who the dickens else wanted? Oh, now there's a bill. As we sit here today, there's a bill in the house by some guy from Maine to open up the program. Again, not only for the dried fruit, but for canned fruit. Mm -hmm. you know, the little cans of fruit, cocktail and pizza, just sugar. So it's an ongoing struggle. Ongoing struggle. It's indeed. an ongoing struggle <laughs> to keep it fresh fruits and vegetables. It's gotten so big, though. I think now we have the um, the produce people uh, for who are the, you know the the, the United, lobbyists United Fresh and United Fresh Fruit and Vegetable. Yeah, I think I don't. Yeah, United Fresh Fruit and Vegetable, vegetable yeah. people are now geared up for this. Uh, obviously, it's in their economic interest too. Yeah. But I think it's in all of our interest to have to keep that program going. Anyway, I, that's a long yeah. story. <laughs> well, you know, it really, the, the, two, the 2002 Farm Bill, you get the snack program in, and you get Farmer's Market Promotion Farmer Program Market promotion. in, and the organic certification. Okay. And now, all of that is now in the horticulture title of the Farm Bill, which didn't exist back then. But now, we, you know, it's a given that fruits and vegetables are part of the Farm Bill. And there's a horticulture section. There's a, there's a title called horticulture and it's got all, of, it's got the organic programs. It's got the specialty crop block grant. It's got farmer's market promotion program. All of that is packaged together. And you need to, I need to get a briefing from you again. So what all the recent <laughs> I mean, you know, since I retired. Yeah, I mean, so, you know, it, all those things that you championed in 2002 have now grown into oh, its own title of the oh, Farm Bill. So wow. that's that's progress. That's, that's nice. That's really progress. That's nice yeah. to know. Well, we can just keep the canned fruit and the peanuts and the nut people out of the snack program <laughs> and enlarge the snack program even more. Uh, and that leads me on to the, well, that's something I was only peripheral, peripherally involved in, and that's the, uh, the uh, changing the... Uh, 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 the school lunch program mm -hmm. uh, to making it more healthy foods and stuff. I'd have to give more time credit to Tom Vilsack on that one. 
but we were we were involved in it and 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 having hearings. I remember and promoting moving to a oh I, one thing that I had been involved in for years. Uh, was it on the ag committee or was it no? It was on on the health committee, getting soft drinks out of high schools. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, we finally succeeded. Finally got that done. Uh, so there's there's some progress, I guess. Yeah, indeed. Well, Fern, I was wondering if you uh, had anything more to add in this kind of area uh, or not. If not, we could move on to. Yeah, I think go ahead. Sure. uh, Thinking about uh, uh, looking forward. Uh, If you were not retired uh, and Hmm. wanted to think about, well, what didn't we get accomplished or what do we need to take to the next level or even beyond farther, just generally, what do you think the policy priorities should be for and his crew uh, going forward to really advance organic and sustainable ag, healthy, healthier rural communities. You know, my little town in Iowa, drying up just, you know, like they all are. What what needs to be done in that whole whole area from your thinking? Well, gosh, that's that that's that's a lot. <laughs> well, first of all, uh, focusing more of our money uh, on beginning farmers programs mm-hmm. and getting young people to understand you can make a decent living on uh, not a lot of land. And there, there's, you know, things have a, a wave action. Things cycle back and forth. Mm-hmm. Even before I left the Senate, I picked up that more and more young people were thinking this might be a good life. I may not get real rich. Uh, I may not get on Wall Street, but Something to be said for family and and rural living and uh, that kind of lifestyle, but you got to have an income. Mm-hmm. So again, the the constant challenge I think for us is us is, is to take that money that we're putting into agriculture and quit giving it to these big farmers that are making a lot of money, and focus it on these beginning farmers, giving them the wherewithal to both do organics, farmers markets. Uh, Buying land, uh, rural development. That's another thing. I mean, we've done a decent job in Iowa, although there's a place up in northwest Iowa and Minnesota we haven't finished yet. I'm talking about rural water. Oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. Getting clean rural water to people. I mean, some people think it's a no brainer, but it costs money. Mm-hmm. And we've done some of it, but we need to do a lot more. We need a lot more money put into conservation. Well, the conservation kind of programs we've been talking about, mm-hmm. uh, even after all of this, streams and rivers near where I live in Iowa are so polluted, you would not want to swim in them. The, see, you shouldn't ask me a question. <laughs> What's happened, I, I, I remember telling my Farm Bureau people come in, you can't farm like your grandpas did. It, it, it no longer works. Why? Well, because in Iowa, when my dad was young or younger and stuff, he did a lot of tiling, red clay tiles. Mm-hmm. Dig these tiles, trenches, and put those tiles in. They were horribly efficient, inefficient. But they leaked. They didn't. You didn't cement them together. You just laid them down, and they leaked. And but they did a pretty good job. Well. And that took a lot of work, a lot of time. So you had to be in an area where you could get a 
really good return to put the tile in. Well, what happened? They came up with these tiling machines that just go <laughs> right through a farm and they got this plastic pipe with the holes in it and they can lay tile like you can't believe. So we've tiled land in Iowa that was not really tiled before or if it was tiled, those tiles all filled in and stuff and they put this new stuff in. My God, it rains now and it gets into that stuff and it shoots right into the ditches, shoots into the streams. And what's it taking with it? All the nitrogen, all the phosphorus, all that stuff that farmers continue to put on their land or from the uh, CAFOs, the big uh, hog operations and stuff. They say, well, we put them in ponds and stuff. Yeah, right. I mean, yes, but it, they all leak. They, we all know that, that they, that they leak. And, uh, and so we find the city of Des Moines now spending lots of money uh, taking the uh, pollutants out of the water just, just to drain. Well, if you're going to ask, if you want young people to stay in these small towns and stuff, they got to have clean water, they need health care, they need education services, um, and they'd like to have some recreation areas. The Raccoon River, near where I live, when I was a kid, we would swam in it, we fished, we ate the fish out of it. It was, mm -hmm. you wouldn't do that. I don't think there are any fish left in it. So damn polluted, and you wouldn't swim in it. But, so to focus on those kinds of things, and you'll find young people saying, hey, this, this, this is something, yeah. but we need schools, healthcare, extension services, community health centers that can reach out to small communities. I start, I've been involved in community health centers in Iowa uh, and getting money for building community. We built one in, in up, up near um, uh, Northwest Iowa. Uh, anyway, uh, we got one started. And then I got some money for a mobile office, a mobile community health center so that would go out to all these small towns and stuff. And it had a dental service in it. Not a dentist, but someone who would check their teeth mm -hmm. and say, you need to go to a dentist and here's what you need to do. They would do uh, blood work up there, but they would take blood samples and they would take care of it. They would do things for babies, uh, expectant mothers, just on this mobile office. Mm. It was a huge success. And guess, we lost it. We lost it when Katrina hit. And the people down there wanted it. So it went down to Louisiana and we haven't seen it since. Mm -hmm. <laughs> but just things like that. But it costs money. And no one will pay for it. I mean, uh, that's why I say we have, we have enough money in agriculture. It just needs to be redirected, yeah. refocused. Now, will that ever happen? Mm. Bit by bit, piece by piece, I hope so. Yeah, I, you know, it... it uh, oh, excuse me for it. I just thought of something else. Okay. Okay. Um, we have a, a group of people in Iowa. Uh, this is down the Maharashi Mahesh oh, yeah. Yogi uh, in, uh, in, Fairfield. in Fairfield, Iowa. Now, they have built a lot of greenhouses, and they're growing uh, vegetables, yeah, vegetables, in the middle of the winter. They're heating them, mm -hmm. and they're, what do they call them, tunnels? Uh, hoop houses or high tunnels. Hoop, yeah, hoop houses, something like that, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. 
And so they hit it, but that costs money. They're using natural gas, some solar. Uh, but they have markets in Chicago for all these fresh fruits. Mm-hmm. So it costs a lot of money to get it going. Now, I don't know if they're breaking even now or not. If they are, maybe. But it costs a lot of upfront money to get this going and that kind of thing. Uh, I've often thought, why can't we do that for smaller farmers? Where you might not have the biggest operation they have, you could have a smaller operation. We have the energy programs where they can access energy, not funded enough, so they could produce maybe enough energy to keep these warm. And then my idea was to have a cooperative system where you'd have a lot of these people doing it. They would have a co-op, they would bring it to a central place, and then that central place could then market it somewhere else. Yeah. I still think it's an idea worth pursuing. Yeah, and you're beginning to see some of that. So, Are we? Yeah, I think, you know, I, I think the there's a kind of a new interest in co-op because, you know, individual farmers doing all the transportation themselves is, yeah. is, is really time consuming, not to mention, you know, costly. costly. So costly. you're seeing distribution uh, kind of co-ops come back on the landscape, which I think is could be really important for making that shift. Also in the EQIP program now, this was a Tom Vilsack thing. There's, now you can get money from EQIP to put up hoop houses to grow vegetables in the winter. So um, that's- So an individual farmer can get money from EQIP to put up these things. Yeah, which has been, you know, very- um, um, But is that just for animals or is that for- No, no, this is for vegetables. Oh, no kidding. Yeah. I'm sure glad I'm having this interview. Yeah, I'm learning yeah. I didn't even yeah that's, that's been, you know, since only the last six or seven years now. But um, it, but it's really taken off and it's oh. quite popular. So would you tell me where I can read up on some of this? Yeah, I'd, sure. I'd like to know about yeah. that aspect yeah. of it. Another thing that's still going that you did, which was to put organic inside of Equip, that would have been in 2008. 2008. Um, yeah. uh, uh, Senator Gillibrand, but then not, then at that time, Representative Gillibrand had the, com- Pan- the companion, companion bill in the House and you yeah. had it in the Senate. And so yeah. that's still going. So there's an organic initiative within EQIP where you can get money to transition to. That's music organic. to my ears because I never liked EQIP because <laughs> it always went to these big cables. They were yeah. sucking up all this money. They probably still are. They're, they're still in the game. <laughs> and irrigation is big on Equip oh. now, too. That's probably the biggest use of Equip today is oh. irrigation equipment. But And that's, well, that's something else I have a problem with. Yeah. Boy. Um, yeah, it, it really, it really it has never made up its mind. Is it, a, is it a program to help? put on structures <laughs> like irrigation yeah, or, right, right. or is it a program to help farmers produce in more environmentally sustainable ways? And it, it never quite ever makes up its mind which kind of program it is. But the more things like the organic initiative and the hoop house initiative that can get in there, at least it gives options for people. We're very grateful for your time and for, for the good questions and stimulating this conversation. You've got uh, the ongoing work of the National Sustainable Ag Coalition great, great, and we're very grateful. I hope you guys are financially okay. Yeah, we're doing all right. Yep. Okay. So thank you very much. Yeah. This has been part of the National Sustainable Agriculture Oral History Archive, produced by Ron Cruz, available on the Minnesota Institute for Sustainable Agriculture website. 
The podcast was made possible by the Center for Rural Affairs. 